Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from Tom Van Dyke, who is part of our teaching team here at Crossview. All right, today I'm talking about fear and perfect love. Fear is a very interesting thing. In a battle of wits, fear always wins, always, and I can prove it to you. How many of you in here have a fairly significant phobia of snakes? Anybody? Okay. What if I told you at some point I was going to throw a snake at you, or just a rubber snake, what are the chances you would be able to, in the split seconds that I threw it at you, be able to go, no, Tom warned me about this? You wouldn't be able to. You would freak out because your brain is wired for fear. Even when you know that there is a rubber snake, it's not real. Even when you know that is going to happen at some point, because your brain is wired for fear, you will respond in fear. Now, this is actually not a bad thing. Uh, You see, fear causes your body to go into the three Fs. And there's actually more that scientists are finding out. You either go into... Uh, flight, fight, or freeze. So some people, when they're afraid, they freeze. They don't know what to do. Some people just run in the opposite direction. The funniest is fight, because those people make for great videos. <laughs> they're, the, they're the people whose uh, you know, college roommates jump out and scare them, and they just deck them in the face. It's hysterical. There's also some other Fs, actually, though, like uh, faint. Sometimes you can be so afraid your body shuts down and says we must preserve all just core, just core systems, and so you faint. So there's another one, though, that scientists are finding. It's called fawn. So if you are in a very stressful situation, you'll just start talking and talking and, and complimenting someone. It's fascinating. But fear is not a bad thing, because in a danger, it's a, it's a response to danger that could actually save your life. If there was a true thing that was going to harm, harm you, you'd want to have a fear response to it. However, because your brain is hardwired for, to, to protect itself, and it's fast, it's a very fast response, it can be a very dangerous way for us to get a fast response from people in our lives. And you see, that makes fear a tempting, a tempting way to get somebody to behave, to do what you want. This kind of thing has informed entire generations of evangelists. If Jesus isn't attractive enough on his own, there's always the horror of hell, the terror of the tribulation. That will get people on track. Personally, I've never been motivated by hell or impending tribulation. Now, to be sure, I've had these moments of quiet palpitations, you know, late at night when you're considering eternity. I've been worried about, you know, the eternal torment and, you know, being put to death for my belief in Jesus, but I've always been far more motivated by Jesus' love for me. You know, I've met Christians, they have a running total of how many people they've witnessed to. They want to know how many people they've led to Christ. And I just don't care about it. My goal is to love as many people as possible. And I challenge you to 
keep tally of that if you're going to keep a tally of anything. How many people you just loved, especially smelly ones? You know, there's a very famous uh, photograph of Princess Diana, and actually when I, when I looked for it this week, um, there were a number of photographs with her in this same situation. You might remember it. It was in the 80s when AIDS was becoming a very scary thing, a reality all around the world, and she, was, she had actually, um, she created one of the first AIDS hospices. And there's this incredible picture of her shaking the hand of an AIDS patient. And that was at a time when people really didn't know how AIDS was transmitted, and so it was very shocking to see a royal doing this. Now, I don't know anything about her life to comment on the Christ-likeness or lack thereof of the princess. But when she touched that person, she did a very Christian thing. She was saying, your identity is human, it's not a disease. You are a person of immense value and worth, regardless of how you got your disease. You see, Jesus touched people who were considered untouchable in his day. For him, it was a leper or a blind man who was presumably under the condemnation of some sin. Jesus went out of his way to sit with a Samaritan woman. He refused to condemn a woman caught in adultery. To Jesus, the children making noise at his church service... They were not a nuisance. They were a chance to experience the whimsy of God. Jesus not only loved people, but he respected and honored them in in spite of their silly posturing. You know, he would meet with religious leaders in the middle of the night so that they didn't have to risk being seen with him and harm their reputation. He said his mission was one of condemnation, not of condemnation, but of love. This is Jesus the beautiful, and he motivates me. When I fail, he doesn't condemn me. He helps me to get on the right path again. It's Jesus the beautiful. But what is true about Jesus is also true about God the Father. Jesus makes this clear to Thomas and Philip. In John 14, Thomas asks Jesus how they will follow Jesus if they don't know where he's going. Actually, first of all, uh, he, and then he said, replied to them, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip, famously missing the point, declares, but Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Oh, yeah, how can you say, show us the Father? You've been with me. And then, in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. It's one of my dad's favorite verses. And for those who would come to believe in him because of the testimony of those who were alive with him. And he said this, Righteous Father, the world has not known you, however I have known you. And they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and they and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. And then, he, that, and that really was the big reveal. The big reveal was that the love that is in me, that is from you, is now going to become apparent to the world. 
See, Jesus was saying that as his disciples come to know him, they would come to know the Father, and this is important because they had not known this quality of love before. Their picture of God the Father did not involve the love that they were experiencing from Jesus. Now think about that. Jesus was saying that he is the most accurate and complete revelation of God the Father. You see me, you see the Father. That's what's going on here. But if that's true, if Jesus is the most complete revelation of the Father, that means that all the people who came before Jesus did not have a complete revelation of the Father. Now that shouldn't be shocking. If you think about it logically, it's obvious that God didn't, or that Abraham didn't know God the way the apostle Peter did. It's obvious. How could he have? But although it seems obvious, this is what we need to think about today. Because understanding Jesus as the most accurate revelation of God has profound implications for how we read the Bible, how we live, and how we relate to God. So let's talk for a minute about, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Let's talk for a minute about Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus and the Old Testament. Now, revelation is how you get to know anyone. You can't know anybody unless they are revealed to you in some way. For example, you don't know everything about me. You only know the things that are revealed to you, right? And I might even be hiding some things. I might be a secret Alouettes fan. I promise I'm not. <laughs> but you know something about me by what I reveal about myself and possibly what others reveal about me. Make sense? But you can't know me unless somebody or my, myself or somebody else has revealed me to you. We all have to have a revelation of somebody else to know them. Now, to understand what I'm driving at tonight, you have to understand that there are two kinds of revelation that we talk about when we talk about God. There is what we call general revelation and special revelation. And these are the ways that we know about God. They're the broad categories of revelation that are available to us because God is not available to us in the body to tell us what he's like. So we have to have other ways to get to know him. Nature is an example of uh, general revelation. So when it says in uh, Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth declares the work of his hands, they're saying something. In Romans 1 verse 20, it says that people are literally without an excuse because they can see the supernatural power of God through nature and what he has created. So there is this general revelation through which we can know God. If you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, the incredible minutia that had to come together for us to be on a life-sustaining planet like we have, I go, well, there's a God. It's incredible. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, special revelation is a supernatural revelation. For example, the transmission of the Bible from God to humankind. But we might say that Jesus, who is considered a special revelation, is actually a super special revelation. Jesus is the most accurate revelation. So when you look at how God is revealed in the Old Testament and how he is revealed through Jesus, you might say, in a word, that Jesus is superior. 
The revelation we see in Jesus is superior to the revelation of God we see in the Old Testament. Now, that isn't to say the Old Testament isn't important. Don't hear me saying that. Jesus validated the Old Testament continually. He spoke about the Old Testament people as if they were real. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Jonah, he talked about all of them. He never made it sound like they were fictitious, like they might be characters in one of his parables. It's not what he was doing. They were real. He also quoted the Scriptures. And remember, any time in the New Testament that it says he quoted the Scriptures, he can only be quoting the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So Jesus quoted the Old Testament and the Scriptures at least 19 times. For example, in Deuteronomy, when he was tempted by the devil, I think he quoted uh, Deuteronomy like four times to the devil. I'm convinced that's where he was in his reading plan. <laughs> it was just fresh, <laughs> you know. Some scholars believe that Jesus, as, uh, as much as 10% of Jesus' spoken words were referencing something in the Old Testament. So was the Old Testament important? Hugely important. It was incredibly important. It was important to Jesus, it's important to us. But the writer of Hebrews has something really interesting to say about Jesus and his relationship to the Old Testament. For example, in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made, uh, made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by, the power, by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, of uh, the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as in the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, there is this excellency and superiority of Jesus He's not just greater than the angels. He's, look at this. He is the exact expression of God the Father's nature. So if ever you wanted to know how God would think and act, you look at the life of Jesus and you get a very good idea of it. Now in Hebrews 3, verse 3 and 5, we read that Jesus is greater than Moses. Again, this isn't like this is not surprising stuff, but we got to think about it. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as God as a servant in God's household, as a testimonial as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. In other words, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the one who built the house. He's greater than the one who lived in the house. And that's important because what they're talking about here is not just people. They're talking about who Moses represents. Moses brought us the law, the Levitical law, right? The, the, the rules for how we should function as a society, or the ancient Jews should function as a society. How they should approach God. All these rules were from Moses. He, that was the law. And what we're learning here is that Jesus is greater than the one who gave us the law. And then in Hebrews 8, verse 6, it says this, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to the, that degree that he is the mediator, mediator of a better covenant, which has, to, has been established on better promises. Jesus is actually giving us better promises, and everybody who's ever thought of having to sacrifice turtle doves has agreed. 
because that would really stink if we had to do that before we came into this sanctuary every time. Right? So this is not like totally surprising. There is little doubt that the way that Jesus interacted with people in the Gospels and the way that he was remembered by the apostles who wrote the rest of the New Testament was different than how God was described in the Old Testament. For example, when, Jesus, when people touched Mount Sinai, they would die. But when they touched Jesus, they were healed. Where the Mosaic law put people out of community because of disease or even regular bodily functions, Jesus drew the outcasts into community. You see, he would have hugged the AIDS victim. When in Luke 9, James and John, the sons of thunder, offered to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village for not welcoming Jesus, he chastised them. But weren't they simply hearkening back to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah? You see, these differences have a significance for how we read the Old Testament. Now, some people say in error, well, that means that we're clearly worshiping two different gods. The God in the Old Testament clearly can't be the same God as in the New Testament. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In fact, in Hebrews 13, verse 8, this is what he says. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. Now, what's interesting is that right after he wrote this line, he then went on to talk about how all the rituals, um, you know, about the superiority of grace over food rituals and temple sacrifices. So he was saying... Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but the way we approach him has changed significantly. It's changed significantly. In other words, Jesus and Yahweh of the Old Testament are one and the same, even though they are described differently. You see, Jesus is not superior to the Father. He represents his Father perfectly. But the revelation of the Father we have in Jesus is superior to the revelation of the Father we have in the Old Testament. So let's circle back for a moment to the topic of fear. There is no doubt that the way that people approached God in the Old, in the Old Testament did so with a sense of fear, even terror. An approach isn't even a good way to describe their relationship because they couldn't approach God directly. The book of Leviticus is entirely about appeasing God, cleansing rituals so they'd be acceptable to God, and the methods of sacrifice would, that would cover their sins so that he literally would not destroy them. At Mount Sinai, the people were so terrified by the fire of God on the mountain that Moses set up markers around the boundaries and said, don't go there because that's the safest distance you can be before you get harmed. Yahweh was the terrifying God who Rahab heard about before the Israelites crossed into the Jordan or into the Promised Land. And by the way, he lived up to the height when he crushed the people of Jericho under the city walls. Yahweh was the one who sent fire that consumed an altar of water-soaked wood and rock at the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The judgment of Yahweh swallowed up the rebellious followers of Korah, but also struck Uriah dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. Compare that to Christ. 
who for the joy set before him endured the pain and humiliation of the cross. Why? Because he wanted to rescue people from fear and terror and condemnation. So what happened? Did God grow up? Was he an impatient, impetuous young God, ill-tempered in the Old Testament? But then he just traded his vengeance for a more calmer approach in the New Testament? Not if Hebrews 13 verse 8 is true. No, I think what has happened, and this is really important, is that humanity, people, grew into a more complete and accurate understanding of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. One time I was, uh, when we lived on Jefferson and Deerfield, I had my son Malachi. He was maybe four or five at the time. And I carried him out onto the deck in the back, and we were really lucky. There weren't lots of streetlights and stuff, so we could just look up at the sky. And, you know, he, I remember looking up, and I was showing him that we could sort of see the Milky Way, and we could see different constellations. And we were standing there for a few moments, and then we were quiet. And then all of a sudden, Malachi said to me, Daddy, can you please take me in? I'm really scared. What was he scared of? There were no, there wasn't any wind howling. There were no wolves, <laughs> you know. It was just the vastness of the night. And as a five-year-old, he could sense his smallness compared to it. We know, I know, those are stars. Those are stars billions of light years away in some cases, but we can study them. We know that they're burning balls of gas. We can see how they form and, and blow apart and create black holes and all the same, all the stuff. But when you just sit and look at it as a child, and actually even as an adult, don't you sometimes just get overwhelmed with fear? Isn't there something that overwhelms you? You see, the night sky doesn't change, but the way we relate to it does. What about the mystery of the northern lights? I love the northern lights. Oh, that was the night sky. I love the northern lights. This I took last winter, I think, out of, on my, from my front yard. The CBC ran a, an article a number of years ago on the different indigenous legends about the Northern Lights, and it's fascinating. For example, um, for some, it was an omen of bad luck, so you shouldn't look directly at them. For others, it was a sign of a blessing. In one particular legend, they would say that they, there's this, there's this uh, legend that if you go out and you whistle to the Northern Lights, they'll come closer. But you had to be careful, because if you whistled too f and they came too close, they would chop off your head. <laughs> so there was this one, there was this one story uh, in the article about a guy who said they used, to, they used to go out and they used to whistle, and it was, like, it was like, you know, the last person standing on the bridge when the cars are coming? <laughs> I know some of you played that game. That's what it was like. They would like whistle at the northern lights and then see which of the last kids was the bravest standing out there, seeing how low they would come. You know what the northern lights are? They're charged particles carried on the solar winds that collide with gases in Earth's atmosphere, creating billions of flashes in sequence. They fill me with wonder, though. But to ancient peoples who don't know that, don't have a scientific revelation of what that is. It's something entirely different. Can you imagine Moses looking up at northern lights? He wouldn't have because he lived in the Middle East and they don't get them there. But can you imagine if he did? 
I'm not sure, but if you had told Moses that the earth was a globe suspended in space and the orbit was in orbit around the sun, burning a burning nuclear reactor, he wouldn't quite have comprehended what you were talking about, would he have? He would have felt the supernaturalness of these northern lights. His revelation was different than our revelation. He knew different things about the universe than we know. Think about this. We know that the ancient Israelites had an ancient worldview of the universe. We know this. Did you know that when somebody comes up to you and they live close by and says that the earth is flat, you know what they're being? True to Scripture. Because the Scripture talks about the earth being flat. Chris has mentioned this before when he talked about Hebrew cosmology and ancient beliefs. But, I mean, it talks about this in, in, uh, in Psalm uh, 75. In Psalm 75, it talks about, you know, God is the one who steadies the pillars when the earth shakes because it's on these pillars. And it's not, this is what they believed. They also believed, by the way, we can read this in Psalm 74, that he crushed the heads of a sea monster before he created the earth. They literally believed that. I'll bet you've never heard that before. It doesn't show up in Genesis really clearly, but it's right there in Psalm 74. When he divided the seas with his strengths, you crushed the heads of the sea monsters and you fed them to the creatures of the desert. They thought that God stored up rain, hail, and snow in storehouses in heaven so that every time it rained, God's just like sprinkling water on the earth. They had no concept of the water cycle. Go figure. They believed that the sky was a dome. Don't even ask what they thought about fertility because that gets real weird real fast. <laughs> this is not in the Bible, but other ancient civilizations like the ancient Egyptians, they knew nothing about biology. They would, they would when they mummified their dead, the important dead, what they would do is they wanted to preserve the body so that in the afterlife they would have everything they needed. So they'd carefully remove all the inner organs and mummify those as well, except for the brain. Just poke a, like a hook up there and pull it out in chunks through the nose. That's literally what they did. Because they had no concept that the brain is really important in this life and the afterlife. I'm just kidding. It's important in this life. <laughs> That's not the part I was kidding about. <laughs> So the ancient worldview did not get cosmology, biology, geography, geology, meteorology, horticulture, or parenting practices right. But we assume that everything it says about theology is accurate. That makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Listen, ask yourself, did Moses accurately hear God when God dictated that husbands could divorce their wives? He did. He heard accurately. But we know from Jesus that God hates divorce. And then he, that in Deuteronomy, he was just accommodating people's stubborn hearts. That's what he was doing. It was not the best plan. The revelation of Deuteronomy and divorce was not God's ultimate heart on the matter. What about in Leviticus 24? When Moses wrote down that God said they could take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, did he hear God accurately? He did. He heard God accurately. But we have a better way from Jesus in Matthew 24 when he says we're to love our enemies. Not only don't take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but love the people who take yours. Now think about this. Moses 
If you had asked Moses, he would have told you that God said we should take an eye for an eye. He would have said that. Moses would have told you that God wanted it that way, but God did not want it to remain that way. And Jesus completed this incomplete view. This is really, really important, and it's got a very important application for how we live. Remember what I said about fear? It's this fast way to get people to do stuff, to get the behavior you want. Not lasting behavior, never kid yourself. For example, people define their political views. Oh, and and we have to be very careful, because what happens is people define their political views based on Old Testament passages. Passages saturated with fear and terror. If you want to deal with crime, use the fear of the death penalty to scare the kids straight. It's in the Old Testament. But Jesus preached a better way. There are parents who form their parenting style around ancient parenting practices, and they leave grace entirely out of their discipline. And then they wonder why their kids... Don't love them in their old, when they get older. Why they can't wait to get out of the house. I am, you see, if your God, picture of God is entirely formed by, the, by an Old Testament worldview, it will be complete, incomplete. It will always be incomplete. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study it. I love studying the Old Testament. I actually really do. But if you ask me whether I think we should think of God as wrathful, vengeful, and terrifying, as he often appears in the Old Testament, or whether we should see God as gracious, long-suffering, and unconditionally loving, as we see in Jesus, I'll take the revelation of Jesus any day of the week. Furthermore, if I'm talking to a child or a new Christian, I will introduce them to a God through the life and teaching of Jesus and leave some of the the stories of the Old Testament for later. In terms of priority for how we approach Scripture today, I prioritize the Gospels because they demonstrate God's ultimate desire for humankind. Here's my suggestion to you. Read the Bible. Read all of it. But every time you read the Old Testament... End by reading this most precious verse. I literally think this is the most precious verse in all of Scripture. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. This frames a Christ-centric view of Scripture. It's better. Love is the highest metric of every action and every word spoken. And by the way, it's not hard to tell if somebody is loving or not. So when you hear people justifying their fear-based politics, their fear-based parenting, their fear-based preaching through texts that are steeped in ancient worldview and not in the grace of God. It's simply about taking shortcuts to change people as quickly as possible as opposed to loving them for the long haul.
And by the way, I am so guilty of taking the shortcut. I am so guilty of it. But God does not take the shortcut with us. His love extends through generations. See, they have these little glimpses, have these little glimpses in the Old Testament. Your love endures forever. Little pictures of what Jesus would do one day. But then Jesus came. And he fulfilled all of the pictures and the prophecies that led up to him and showed us the ultimate way to live. Love is the highest metric of every action taken and every word spoken. God never takes the shortcut with us. He does not use fear to manipulate us into action. He always loves us towards action. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so grateful because I get scared sometimes when I imagine myself at the base of Mount Sinai. I can feel the fear of all the Israelites who were terrified of what you were. And then I read that I can come to your throne where I can see grace when I need it most. And I go, oh, thank goodness. I thank you for Jesus and the way that he demonstrated the highest ethic, the highest metric, which is love. I thank you for that. I pray that our the way we live our life, from everything from parenting to politics, would have a Christ-centered love to it. Because that is the only way we are going to draw more people into this family. It is the only way. The world has enough fear. Don't let the church be another place where they feel it. I ask all of these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.